2.1 billion. That's a pretty big number. If you counted one number every second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would take you about 70 years to count to 2.1 billion. 2.1 billion people around the world claim the name of Jesus today. And 2.1 billion is just a fraction of the number of people who have followed Jesus for the last 2,000 years. But this worldwide family of believers began with only a small number of committed individuals who had an encounter with a power larger than themselves. That handful of people went from being faces in the crowd to active parts of a movement that would change the course of humanity forever. Through the Spirit of God, we have the potential for great things. Jesus has empowered each one of us to change the course of history. It's up to us to take on that challenge. The founders of the early church were not anything special on their own. They were ordinary people who encountered an extraordinary power and responded in obedience. That's their origin story. What's yours? On April 3rd, 33 AD, the leader of a fledgling religious movement was crucified on a hilltop just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, the religious leaders at the time and the Roman government believed that they had squashed what, uh, they, what could have been or a prospective rebellion. And they buried him um, in a tomb just adjacent to the hillside. Uh, unfortunately, a couple days later, some rumors started to circulate. Some nasty rumors that that individual who they had crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, has risen from the dead. And people started saying that they had seen him, not only seen him, but they had eaten with him. They had hugged him. They had touched him. They had spoken with him. And hundreds, even thousands of witnesses came forward to say, I saw him. I ate with him. I talked to him. And about 50 days after that, there were a group of his early followers, about 100 of them, huddled in a room in Jerusalem, fearing for their own lives because they had just crucified their leader. And in that moment, they, they experienced something that we could only describe as supernatural. These ordinary people, fishermen, tax collectors, some of them barely literate, experienced an extraordinary power and what was once Fear became courage, and they began to preach the good news about the resurrected Jesus to people all over the Roman Empire. But here's the good news about Jesus, that he came to establish a kingdom, and unfortunately, instead of establishing the kingdom, you crucified him, you lawless sinners. That good news didn't go over very well. Not now and not then. And so this fledgling religious movement with no infrastructure and no resources and very little leadership and no organization faced the religious establishment that had leadership and infrastructure and history and resources and faced the Roman Empire, which had a whole lot of resources and experience and power. And the religious establishment and the Roman Empire continued to endeavor to squash the way, the movement, these followers of Jesus. 
So all over the Roman Empire, Christian communities began to spring up. They hadn't even been called Christians yet. That happened at Antioch down the road. It began to spring up. And so instead of just cowering in fear, the leaders of the early church began to write letters to those communities and circulate them around in these little gatherings of Christians all over the Roman Empire. And one of those letters we commonly call the book of Hebrews. Now, the author of Hebrews, is writing from a Jewish Christian perspective. So this individual, likely Barnabas, most people think it was Barnabas, is writing from a Jewish Christian perspective and says, here's why Jesus is exalted. Here's why he's preeminent. Here's how to understand Jesus of Nazareth and the Messiah in Jewish terms. But I want you to understand all of this because I want you to be able to bear up under the persecution that you're seeing. Because by this time, in about 65 or 70 AD, Christians were being thrown to the lions. Christians were being used by near to light his garden parties, and not by holding a torch, but by being the torch. Uh, Christians were being beheaded and crucified, and so the author of Hebrews says, don't cower back, don't shrink back, don't hide in your fear, but move the mission of Jesus forward. In chapter 12, the author of Hebrews writes this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us That's us. Also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. I hope by the end of the series we have this verse memorized. And I want you to see three things today in this verse. It's the mission, the movement, and the motivation. The mission is very, very clear. The author of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, you have a goal. You have a finish line. You have an end game. And that is to make disciples. That is to be the light of Christ. That is to move the kingdom of God forward. That's the race. So don't give up. Don't cower back. Don't get tired. Endure and persevere. Bayview Glen Church, God has given us a mission. The very reason why we exist is to work together so that everyone everywhere can experience God's love and his created purpose through Jesus. We don't do this alone. We link arms, hold hands, whatever. Everybody, hands in the middle, working together so that everyone Regardless of ethnic background, regardless of religious background, regardless of what language you speak, sexual identity, gender identity, we want everyone everywhere to experience God's unconditional, relentless, passionate love for them and and experience the purpose he has for them through Jesus. Because God has a purpose for you. He has a plan for your life. He has a desire for you. He has a desire for the way that you spend your money, for the way that you engage in relationships, for your marriage. He has a hope and a future for you. We want you to experience all of that through Jesus. That is the race, Bayview Glen Church, that God has called us to. And we commit to run that race with endurance. But running that race requires a little bit bit of movement on our part. It requires that we shift some stuff around and move some stuff around. The author of Hebrews says there's two things in particular. One, weight that holds you back, and two, sin which clings so closely. Now, the author of Hebrews says, look, there are some things that you're doing that God says you ought not do. There are some things that you're failing to do that God commands you directly to do. And that's called sin. And that does cling so, so closely, doesn't it? Like sin is like a, like a 
dog barking at your door, like just trying to get in at all times. The author of Hebrews says, get rid of that stuff, not for the sake of sanctification or holiness or to tick some boxes on this behavior chart, but because getting rid of sin helps you to run the race with endurance, helps you to move the mission of God forward. Secondly, he says, lay aside every weight. Now, I'm so glad personally that the author of Hebrews draws a distinction from sin and the things that weigh me down. Because look, there are some things that are weighing you down that aren't necessarily sin, right? There's some things that are holding you back, some things that you're carrying with you in this mission that God has called you to that you need to get rid of to help you run faster and with greater endurance. In fact, at this time in the Roman Empire, kind of the Olympic Games started to, you know, and, and endurance races kind of started to come to the surface. And individuals who ran for long periods of time, did distance running, would run in the natural, um, nude, that's right. And we say in Texas, naked, Right? They wanted to get rid of all of this weight that held them back. Whatever I was carrying before, I wanted to get rid of so I can run the race with endurance. I, I, I wasn't going to share the story, but I'm going to anyway. I was on a plane uh, a, a couple weeks ago with my nine-month-old. His name is Kanan. And I had one of those, um, those baby Bjorn things. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the backpack that you put the kid on, and they're happy, and you know they're bopping around in the front. Well, I get on the plane... Everything's going great, and he's happy, and I'm happy, and then all of a sudden, I have to go to the washroom. Um, and I want to just be really delicate this morning, but it's, it's, it's a washroom visit that requires one to sit down. Um, and my friend Carmen, who's our executive director, so I won't even talk about it, I just want to say he's our executive director. On a regular occasion in meetings or something, if he's got to excuse himself to the washroom, because he's very, very Canadian and very, very polite, he'll just excuse himself and he'll say, I've got to go sharpen my skates. <laughs> got to go. I, he says it so often that I think there are actually skates in his office that he's going to sharpen, right? But so, so let's just put it this way. I was on the plane and I had to sharpen my skates. So here's the deal. I have to go into this teeny tiny airport lavatory. And I don't, I mean, I'm kind of broader up here, right? And I'm in this little lavatory. I feel like I'm in Paul in prison, right? In the Roman Empire. Like, what's happening? And I've got this baby on the front of me. It's like this weight that's holding me down, that's preventing me from running the race that I need to run. So I got rid of the sin and the weight that clung so closely, and I just put him on the washroom floor. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do that. I figured it out, all right? I figured it out. I don't want to get into detail, but I figured it out. My wife afterwards was like, why didn't you ask the flight attendants to hold him? I'm like, I didn't know that was a thing. And now I do. Thanks for that information. That would have been helpful the day I flew. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is there are some things that you need to get rid of that you, that's holding you back, that's holding you down in your life, both sin and just some other stuff that's preventing you from running that race with perseverance. Move that stuff around. Dave Lewis and I talk about on a very regular basis that discipleship, following Jesus, is a systematic reorganization of your life in order to be more like him. 
and to achieve the mission of God. Men and women, I don't want to lie to you this morning. Discipleship is a systematic reorganization of your life to get rid of sin and the weight that holds you back. So here's a third thing the author of Hebrews wants us to know is he wants us to know the motivation. Why would I even do that? I've got a, I've got a mission that God has called me to, and, and, and I've got to move some things around in order to achieve it. So why would I even be motivated? What would cause me? What would be the catalyst to do that? Now watch this. This is absolutely critical because it answers the question that, that is part of this whole series origin story is why in the world would we study church history? The answer to this question is the very same answer for the question, what's my motivation? Watch. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this word witness in the original language is martyr. The author of Hebrews says this, if you look back over the history of those who were faithful to God before Christ, and he names many of them in Hebrews chapter 11, And now, 2,000 years down the road, you and I, we can look back at the stories and the people who were faithful to Jesus in the face of death, who were faithful to Jesus with their finance, with their worship, with their prayer, who looked to him and said, I'm just going to cast off everything else, the sin that clings so closely and the weight that holds me down in order to accomplish the mission of God. And the author of Hebrews now says, now you, you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let that be your motivation. Let that be your inspiration for accomplishing the mission of God. And there are so many other great motivations, but one of them is the cloud of witnesses that surround us, those who have given their lives for the sake of the good news about Jesus. In other words, church history shapes us. It really does. It shapes us as a community. It shapes us as individuals. It shapes our liturgy. It shapes the way we think. It shapes our doctrine and theology. It absolutely shapes us. And post-Reformation, especially people of my ilk, kind of just threw the baby out with the bathwater and jettisoned church history in its entirety. And I think that's a foolish choice. If we can understand that great a cloud of witnesses, if we can understand the giants that came before us on whom we stand, it might help us to pursue what God has called us to. Church history shapes us in so many ways. Church history vindicates God's promises. Did you know that? The fact that the church still exists 2,000 years ago proves, proves the promises of God. Because one of the promises of God was, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the gates of Hades has not prevailed against it. Amen. Second thing is this, that church history is an excavation of orthodoxy. Church history is an excavation of orthodoxy. I used uh, kind of two and three dollar terms here and made this more complicated than probably it has to be, because... I took my English proficiency exam in order to become a permanent resident here in Canada for the second time this week because I failed it the first time. So so just in case somebody who's evaluating that test is watching, I I do have moderate levels of fluency, okay? So here's what this means, and and, and I did it for more more than that reason, okay? Orthodoxy is right thinking, that's, that's what that word means, right thinking. The way we think about God, our doctrine, our theology. 
And that theology has kind of always been there in the scripture and in God's character. But over time, what has happened is like someone is excavating a dinosaur, dinosaur bones, we've discovered over time what right thinking about the scripture is. So many of our doctrines uh, were maybe incorrect or incomplete early on 2,000 years ago, but as the church has grown and over the course of history, it's kind of conducted an excavation of the scripture and done exegesis in order to discover the full-orbed and accurate uh, act more accurate every day, perception and, and understanding of the Scripture. Let me give you an example. The doctrine of the Trinity, that word Trinity is, or, uh, sorry, the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Scripture. It's built into the very fabric of the Scripture that we study each and every week. But that word Trinity did not show up until the 4th century. Do you know that? The reason why is that a man named Arius came along and he said, you know what, I'm pretty sure there was a time when the Son was not, S-O-N. There was a time when Jesus was not. He does not exist uh, in, in, in eternity past. He was created by God. He's not God of himself. He's of a similar substance, but not of the same substance. So in the fourth century, the ecumenical council gathered. That is a global council of churches all gathered together and said, Arius, you are wrong. The son of God is eternally existent in the past and is of the same substance of the father. Hence the reason we use the term Trinity to describe a very accurate biblical doctrine, orthodoxy, but it took some time in order to uncover that within the scriptures. Church history is an excavation of orthodoxy and helps us to get our thinking right. Church history is a mirror for the modern church through which we can see ourselves accurately. I hear people say this all the time. This is the worst, this is the worst time in church history. I mean, this is the absolute worst. Because I know church history, I can tell you that's not true. I can name 10 times off the top of my head that the church was in far worse shape than it is now. So it helps us to see ourselves with accuracy, and it helps us avoid the same mistakes. We can look back at the history of the church over the last 2,000 years and go, you know what? They stumbled a little bit there. They fell a little bit there. They did a face plant there. And that doesn't mean God doesn't love them. He loves them, cares for them, has grace for them, and he continued to sustain his church. But we can look back over church history and go, you know what? I'd rather not make that same mistake again. Let me give you an example. I... Uh, I went to a field trip this week with my daughter. She's four and a half, almost five. And we went to a place called Around the Bend Farm. Around the Bend Farm grows like kale and other stuff I don't eat. I don't know what else they do. But they had a bunch of baby animals because it's springtime, right? All the babies are out. And so what they did is they took the kids in to meet the baby animals. And so Kaya had the opportunity to pet this baby cow. Isn't that cool? Yeah, pet, pet bunnies and ducks and pet this baby cow. This baby cow was so sweet. So here I am with my phone, right? And I'm taking pictures and I'm doing the thing. And, and there are no other dads there. So I'm talking to all the other moms. You know, I'm the mom at that point, right? And I'm taking pictures. And then, the, and then the thing starts to go a little bit haywire when this cow reaches out and grabs uh, this penny that she's wearing. So I don't notice because I'm just trying to take pictures and, you know, talk to other people that are there. And, and then it gets a little bit more aggressive. And the thing is now pulling on her shirt and is trying to eat my child. <laughs> I 
Once again, I'm an awesome dad. Okay, this is what we're learning. This is what we're learning today, okay? So if I went to around the bend farm again, I'd probably put my phone down when my child is petting the baby animals so as to prevent them from eating her, okay? Same thing. You look back over the course of church history, and we go, you know what? We can learn from history and avoid those mistakes. The church has made some mistakes, and we can avoid them in the here and now because we, we get to kind of keep living it out and keep living it out and keep living it out. Side note, that little cow, that little baby cow is going to taste so good tonight because I, you know, the frisky, playful young one, that's the one I want Chop up, put them on my table. That's, that's kind of where I'm at in my life. Tried to eat my kid. What are you going to do? I... Church history helps us to avoid the same mistakes. So that's the reason that we study church history. That's the reason that we endeavor to understand our origin story, where we came from, and how we've developed. Because it's so critical and it absolutely shapes us. So today what I want to do is take a look at the first century church. What was happening there in the first century in the book of Acts and after the book of Acts? What took place in that first century and where was the church at? To kind of get a little bit of the lay of the land and get some foundations for continuing this study about our origins. And so one picture that I want to come to mind when you think of the first century church one picture is this picture right up here on the screen. If you don't know what this is, if you can't see it, this is the Zambezi River. Anybody know what the Zambezi River is? South Africa area and um, Zimbabwe. Was it Zimbabwe? No, it's not Zimbabwe. It's uh, Botswana. Yeah. And, and these are elephants crossing that river. So I, I, I took this picture, actually. Amy and I traveled there a few years ago because so I was teaching at a, a Christian. I did a couple conferences at a Christian university there. And we had the opportunity to go out on this little river cruise, right? And there were these herd of elephants standing on the side of the water. And it was amazing, right? These big, majestic animals. And they start to wade into the Zambezi River. I'm like, well, this is pretty cool, right? And they're walking, and the water's getting deeper, and they're walking, the water's getting deeper. And eventually, they got to a point where the water was so deep that they couldn't walk anymore. And they're swimming. These elephants are swimming across the Zambezi River, and they're using their trunks as snorkels. I'm like, that's cool. But that's not the picture I want you to think of when you think of the first century church. Just on the other side over here, on the back side, there, there, were, there were a little movement in the water over there. And I asked our tour guide, what is that? And he said, it's crocodiles. I said, well, I know what they're doing. But it doesn't make sense that they would attack a herd of elephants, right? Like, that's a big group of folks, and they're not just going to go out and attack them. They're all together, and they're protected, and they're, and they're swimming across together. My tour guide said, yeah, but on occasion, one of the elephants gets separated from the herd. And if and when that elephant gets separated from the herd, predators just come out of nowhere to attack it. And oftentimes, it's a young one, a little baby. Right about the time he said that, a little baby elephant got separated from the herd. And just as he did, you saw the crocs start to move. Again, happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I'm going to give you a little bit of spoiler alert so as not to ruin your Mother's Day. The baby elephant made it back to shore, and there was another elephant there, a big bull elephant that yelled at him. All right. You had your mother and I worried sick. Don't you ever do that again. You know, spank him with the trunk, right? 
But here's the deal. In the first century, the Jewish religion existed underneath the protection of the Roman Empire. They were called a religio licita, a legal religion. They didn't really bother the Roman government. The Roman government didn't really bother them. The Roman government could have, of course, done all kinds of things, but they had kind of given Judaism license to practice and Jews license to practice within the context of the Roman Empire for all sorts of things. And so as different uh, sects within Judaism began to kind of rise to the surface and as different kind of versions of Judaism kind of started to, you know, different strands of thought and different rabbis or whatever, as that continued to happen, the Roman government didn't bother them as long as they existed existed underneath the context of a religio licita. But unfortunately, after 33 AD, what happened was the ties between Christianity and Judaism began to fray a little bit. They began to get cut more and more, especially into 65 and almost 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. Those ties were completely cut, and the Roman government began to see Christianity as its own thing rather than existing under the protective context of Judaism. In other words, this little baby fledgling thing got separated from the herd. And when it did, the Roman Empire just came at it with everything it had in order to squash this fledgling baby faith system. So my question is, how in the world did Christianity survive the first century? Because there was a predator called the Roman Empire that was after them. And they experienced persecution from that herd that they had moved away from as well. So how is it that they survived? And here's the one thing that I want you to get from today. If you get nothing else, they survived because they put Jesus first. You are sitting here 2,000 years later because Jesus was exalted. Because Jesus was put first. Because Jesus was first in their minds and first in their hearts. First in their community. First in their finances. Jesus was first in their homes. Jesus was exalted above all things. Jesus was first. In fact, uh, we just read from Hebrews chapter 12, don't shrink back, don't let your fear overcome you because you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, throw off everything that holds you down and run the race with perseverance. Where does the author of Hebrews start his letter? He starts this way, long ago and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets and in his last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Even in terms of timeline, Hebrews chapter one, verse one, the author of Hebrews begins to talk about Jesus first, whom he appointed appointed the heir of all things, whom he, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews would go on and say, Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the greater high, greatest high priest. Jesus is greater than any heavenly being and any angel. Jesus is great, preeminent, exalted. He's first. Jesus is first. 
Jesus was first in worship for the early church. When they gathered together, the very first thing they did was lit a candle in order to be reminded that Jesus was present with them and he was first in their hearts and first in their gatherings. They would baptize people on a regular basis. We did that last week so that people publicly declared, Jesus is first in my life and my life no longer exists, but I only exist in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's first. They celebrated communion on a regular basis to remind themselves of Jesus' sacrifice so that they could remember that Jesus was first. He was first in their community. What was not first in their community was their ethnicity or their ethnicity or their gender or their socioeconomic status. All of those things had gone away and there was an incredible amount of unity in the early church because Jesus was first. Watch what Paul says. He says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek There is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, is there still Jews and Greeks? Sure there are. Are there still men and women? Yes. Slaves and free? Absolutely. That all existed within the early church. But for the early church, the first century church, Jesus was first, the Son of God, in Christ Jesus. And so he superseded. Their unity in Christ superseded any of these things that could have, that could have created a faction or a division. Ethnicity, gender, uh, socioeconomic status, whatever it was, they had unity because he was first in their fellowship. Jesus was first in terms of the way they spent their money. They thought about Jesus first. What would Jesus want? What would WWJD probably didn't have the bracelets, but whatever. What would Jesus do? How would he want me to invest my money? So when Luke writes about the first century church, he says this, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Now, is this a version of first century communism? No. It's a version of first century radical and explicable generosity is what it is. As the early church gave to those who had need and no one among them had need. Why? Well, Luke's going to tell us in the next verse. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of what? The Lord Jesus, because Jesus was first, and Jesus was first in life and in death. He was first in their money, he was first in their hearts, he was first in their worship, and he was first in life. So much so that when the persecution began from internally and externally, what you see is people responding by exalting Jesus and giving their very lives so that you and I could be sitting here today. When internal persecution rose up within the context of Judaism and the Jewish leaders and the religious Jewish leaders and the religious leaders began to persecute the church we th- there were folks who stood up and said because Christ ex- is exalted because Christ has been crucified resurrected ascended to the right hand of the father I'm not going to back down so Stephen in 36 AD preached the good news about Jesus to the religious leaders And they threw rocks at him until he died. Acts records it this way. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, they being the religious leaders, and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, there he is, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears 
and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll talk about him in a minute. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In other words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sound familiar? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And he gave his life. Because in his heart and mind, Jesus was first. Same thing happened with James. James, the brother of Jesus, was taken up on the Temple Mount. Let me just, I'll just read it to you. This is from Eusebius. He was a third century church historian. He recorded the martyrdom of James. This is what happened. Uh, the, 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 the religious leaders, the internal persecution that rose up from the, the Jewish religious leaders at the time persecuting Christianity, they came to James. They said this, Do you therefore persuade the multitude not to be led astray concerning Jesus? For the whole people and all of us also have confidence in you. Stand therefore on the pinnacle of the temple. From that high position you may be clearly seen. And your words may be readily heard by all the people, for all the tribes and the Gentiles also are come together on the count of the Passover. I love this. Watch how this backfires. Very funny. Okay, so the religious leaders say, hey, we're going to take you up to the very top of the temple, and it's Passover. So Jerusalem is packed. And we want you to tell everybody, Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is not resurrected. And because you're a Jew, they all trust you. The aforesaid scribes and Pharisees, continuing from Eusebius' quote, therefore placed James on the pinnacle of the temple and cried out to him and said, You just one in whom we all have confidence, for as much people are led astray by Jesus, the crucified one, declare to us what is the gate of Jesus. And he answered with a loud voice, Why do you ask me concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? He himself sits at the right hand of the great power and is about to come on the clouds of heaven. And when many were fully convinced and gloried at the testimony of James, people got converted. Uh, and said, Hosanna to the son of David. Now listen, these same scribes and Pharisees said again to one another, we have done badly <laughs> in supplying such a testimony to Jesus. We shouldn't have put him up so high with so many people here. This backfired. But let us go up and throw him down in order they may be afraid to leave him. And they cried out saying, oh, this man is in error. And they fulfilled the scripture written in Isaiah. Let us take away the just man because he is troublesome to us. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their doings. So they went up and threw down the just man, James, and said to each other, let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sound familiar? And when they were stoning him, one of the priests of the son of Rechab, the son of the Rechabites, who mentioned Jeremiah, the, mentioned Jeremiah the prophet, cried out saying, Cease what you do, the just one prays for you. And one of them, who was a fuller, took the club with which he beat out the clothes and struck James on the head, and thus he suffered martyrdom. And they buried him on the spot by the temple, and his monument still remains by the temple. He became a true witness that is now in that cloud of witnesses, both to Jews and Greeks, that Jesus is the Christ. He wasn't defending some kind of club. He wasn't defending some kind of cultural privilege. He came to the temple and gave his life so that he could give testimony to Jesus exalted. 
And then when Christianity kind of came out from under the protective guy or the protective uh, hand of Judaism and kind of became its own thing, now the predator that was the Roman Empire came at them with all of their teeth. And so Nero, when he uh, became uh, emperor in, uh, just before 64 AD, you might know the story that in 64 AD there was a fire in Rome, built, burnt down like a good portion of the city. And Nero was looking for somebody to blame so he could have a scapegoat and offset the blame to someone else. And so who better to blame than this baby fledgling religion? They did it. They did it. So Nero not only blamed the fire in Rome on Christians, but he began to use Christians to light his garden parties. And when I say light his garden parties, they didn't stand with a torch. They were the very torch. He covered them with tar, strung them up on poles, and lit them on fire. Nero was an absolute... I wanna, again, I want to read you for Eusebius because Eusebius talks about Nero and what he did to the church. Eusebius writes this. Once Nero's power was firmly established, he plunged into nefarious vices and took up arms against the God of the universe. Never a good idea. To describe his depravity is not part of the present work. Many have accurately recorded the facts about him. And from them, any who wish may study his perverse and degenerate madness which led him to destroy innumerable lives. And finally, to indiscriminate murder that he did not spare even his nearest and dearest. Nero would eventually kill his mother, sisters, and brothers, even spouses, because he was completely haywire. And under Nero's rule, Peter would be crucified upside down, and Paul would be beheaded because they put Jesus first. There was a little uh, reprieve for the Christian church until Domitian took uh, reign in 95 AD. No one knows why. Probably Domitian uh, felt like his empire or his control was going to be um, uh, threatened by the Christians. And so he implemented a mass persecution of Christians all over the Roman Empire and, and affirmed a persecution of Christians all over the Roman Empire. And so John, who wrote the gospel, was burned with oil and exiled to an island. And Timothy uh, met his fate uh, by clubs in Ephesus when he spoke out against the immorality that was going on there, all because they put Jesus first. Finally, Trajan came to power in 98 AD, and Trajan uh, affirmed for the first time a systematic persecution of Christians. This is all by the end of the first century. Again, this fledgling religion that shouldn't have made it. The Roman Empire was coming after them with all that they had. And so Pliny, who was a governor in Bithynia, which is in the north of Turkey, uh, writes to his boss, Trajan, and says, look, Trajan, I got a problem. It's called the Christians. I'm not sure what to do with them because the thing is growing pretty fast and it's kind of threatening our rule and reign. Really wasn't, but they operated out of fear. So Pliny he writes this, he says, this superstition, that's Christianity, is spread like a contagion, not only to the cities and towns, but to country villages also, which yet there is reason to hope that it may be stopped and corrected. In other words, how do we squash this Christian thing? Trajan writes back, if they be accused and convicted, they are to be punished, and that's capital punishment. He says, you know, give them a trial and make them confess and don't go seek after them. But if they're put on trial and you confirm that they're a Christian, then kill them. And so under Trajan's rule, Simon, who was the bishop in Jerusalem, and Ignatius, you may have heard of, who was the bishop in Antioch, met their fate. Ignatius was actually thrown to the wild beast in one of the Colosseums for Roman entertainment, all because they put Jesus first. 
This value, this statement, this two-word declaration is the very first in a series of six values of Bayview Glen Church. It didn't come out of nowhere. It didn't come out of somebody's ear. But it came from 2,000 years of church history that began in the very first century where we put Jesus above and over everything. And so may it be an inspiration to you, men and women of God, therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that this week you would lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Because here's the deal. You are indeed surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. There are those who came before you that gave their life, their money, their resources, their time, their energy, not just 10 years ago or 100 years ago, but 2,000 years ago. You are surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses. And not only that, but right here, right now, you too are a witness. You're a witness, a voice that's putting Jesus first in your homes and in your hearts. That's putting Jesus first in your thoughts. That's exalting him above all things because the scripture commands it. and Because God is glorified in it. My invitation this morning is that we pray a prayer together in response, a prayer that really seeks to place Christ at the center, to give him his authority and his due, to acknowledge his preeminence, to put him first in terms of timeline, to put him first in terms of priority, to put him first in our worship and in our finances and in our uh, affections, to put him first in all things. And it's a prayer that St. Patrick wrote, who we'll get to as we study church history. But this morning, if you so choose, I would invite you to pray this prayer with me. It's up here on the screen. Christ with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ when we lie down. Christ when we sit down, Christ when we arise, I love this, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of us, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of us, Christ in every eye that sees us, and Christ in every ear that hears us. Oh God, our prayer with passion this morning is that you would be exalted in your church. God, not just your capital C church, but this church, Bayview Glen, as we stand on the shoulders of the giants who have come before us, God, as we learn about how your church has grown and how you have prevailed and how you have made good on your promise that you would build your church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it, God, in every way would you be exalted, would you be first in our church. God, thank you for the opportunity to study the history of your people and to learn and be exhorted and admonished and convicted and empowered and inspired to put you first. In Christ's name, God's people together said.